This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Call Lydia Lewis Tokuingua. Coming up. The smoke is everywhere. Bougainville's Mount Bagana is spewing ash and some lava. Water supplies and food gardens are under threat. Also, right now there are 21 countries who are calling for Paul. The International Seabed Authority is meeting in Jamaica. Caleb Fotheringham finds out where the organisation is at with forming mining regulations. Later, some of our donor partners have changed their position and we are struggling. New Zealand and Australia reject claims that they delayed their Solomon Islands budgetary support. The Mount Bagana eruption in the Papua New Guinea autonomous region of Bougainville is starting to affect crops, rivers and their affairs It could impact sources of drinking water. Mount Bagana, which is 1,800 metres high, began spewing out ash and lava on July 7. The government is issuing daily updates on its response to the volcanic activity. Don Wiseman has more on the mild eruption, which is at level 3 on a five-level scale. Mount Bagana is a frequent eruptor. On this occasion, it's 11 years since the last one. Locals say the ash has covered vegetation, destroyed food gardens, contaminated rivers and streams used as the primary water source. On Monday, villagers in a number of districts close to the volcano were ordered to move to safety. The government said all relief efforts were being coordinated through their disaster management teams. It said it was important that all people in the impacted communities in both Wakanai and Torokina continue to move from their villages to the district stations respectively. This is to allow the district disaster management teams to have oversight and better coordination to move efficiently, carefully and quickly if required. Food and water supplies will also be distributed at the main camp areas at the Torokina and Wakanai stations respectively. The government says the affected communities are strongly urged not to use the contaminated water for drinking, cooking or washing. It warns even if a water source was ash-free, the water must be boiled first. The caretaker, Chief Secretary Esther Usuruk, says that district health clinical officers on the ground at Piva in Torakina and Ruruvu in Wakunai have been instructed to monitor and report on a daily basis the diseases being reported at the clinics especially diarrhoea and other waterborne diseases, plus any reported cases of eye or respiratory infections. Meanwhile, the Torakina Disaster Coordinator Team Leader, Boniface Wadari, said two days after the government order to evacuate, some people were yet to move. Basically, uh, some of them, are, maybe they feel that it's not really a, a big problem, but, you know, they think it's moms, but it's part of, like... They are more, uh, they need to get more information. Mr Wadari said the disaster team has received financial help from two national cabinet ministers, the MP for regional Bougainville, Peter Chiamalili, and the MP for South Bougainville, Tim Masiu, along with the ABG. He said this money is being used to get water and food for the evacuees. Teresa Jaintong is a community leader in Arawa, which is a significant distance from Mount Bagana and well outside the zone the government's ordered to be evacuated. Ms Jaintong said Arawa was feeling the impact of the eruption. Arawa, the impact that we are facing now is the ash 
from the volcano. It's really clouding, uh, you know, the smoke is everywhere. And uh, the fear is we, we, we depend entirely on water tanks because the running water for Arava town is not treated. So that is going to have an impact on our drinking water. Geologists from the Rabaul Volcanological Observatory have undertaken an assessment of the seismic activity in the area and a report is expected from them later this week. The International Seabed Authority, or ISA, is meeting at the moment in Kingston, Jamaica, to discuss deep-sea mining regulations. The UN organisation started discussions earlier this month and will continue until the 28th. Dr Helen Rosenbaum, the co-founder of the environmental charity Deep Sea Mining Campaign, speaks with Caleb Fotheringham about what the meeting is about. The ISA is an international body that's formed under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and it has a mandate to protect and manage the resources of the deep sea in the interests of all humankind. And of course at the moment they are meeting in Jamaica. Can you tell me what that meeting's about? Well the focus of this particular meeting is to discuss the regulations that might govern the commercial deep sea mining. So that hasn't occurred yet, um, commercial deep sea mining, but the ISA has allocated quite a number, 18 in fact, of exploration licences in the Pacific Ocean to a combination of companies and government corporate entities. Where are we at with the regulations? Does it seem like some regulations will be agreed on in this meeting? Uh, No, I don't think so. There's a lot of discussion about all the aspects of the regulations. So the regulations cover financial issues and benefit sharing kind of aspects. And there's a lot of contention about that, especially from developing countries who want to make sure that if deep sea mining occurs, they do get a a fair share of the benefits. But then there's a whole swathe of environmental regulations, which is completely up in the air because we simply don't know enough about the environmental impacts of deep sea mining and we don't know enough about deep sea ecology to even understand what's down there that could be affected by deep sea mining. Right and maybe something else that's slowing down the regulations being passed is it seems like more countries are calling for a pause on deep sea mining. Well, right now there are 21 countries who are calling for pause, either something they call a precautionary pause until regulations are in place or a moratorium on deep-sea mining until more is known about the science surrounding the deep-sea and the impacts of deep-sea mining. And the list is growing. We're hoping, those of us in civil society who are very worried about deep-sea mining, are hoping that the the number of countries will grow to the point where they can actually use their muscle at the ISA and put a halt to deep-sea mining. Does it seem like these countries are wanting a complete ban or are just saying, look, we still want this to happen, but the protocols are not in place yet? Well, only France is being bold enough to to come out calling for a complete ban on deep-sea mining and that's including in their territorial waters in the Pacific. The other countries at this stage are calling for a moratorium until more is known about the science or until proper regulations are in place. 
So obviously from a civil society perspective, we and our campaign, the Deep Sea Mining campaign, we take our cue from our allies in the Pacific. They're calling and we're calling for a complete ban on deep sea mining. You're talking about some allies in the Pacific. What Pacific nations are calling for a complete ban? Because I know that not all of them are. Uh, well, I'm, I'm referring here to uh, our allies being other Pacific civil society organisations. But in the Pacific, Fiji, Samoa, Vanuatu, Federated States of Micronesia have um, formed a kind of pact looking to seek a moratorium on, on deep sea mining. And they've really led the way for the other nations around the world who are now calling for that too. Both New Zealand and Australia have rejected claims by Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Songovade that they delayed their respective budgetary support promises made to the Pacific Island country, prompting him to seek funding assistance from China. Manasseh Songovade made the statement on Monday afternoon in a press conference after his visit to Beijing. Kuroi Hawkins reports. Manasseh Songovare and his delegation of MPs attracted criticism in local media throughout their trip to China last week. It started with an uproar over a remark he made upon arriving in China. The comment, I'm back home, was only the start of Mr Songovare's woes. It was followed by accusations that the trip, which he insists was funded by China and the private sector, might actually have been paid for by Solomon Islands taxpayers. Concerns were also raised about a possible new policing agreement with Beijing. But it was this statement made during a press conference in Honiara yesterday that raised eyebrows in New Zealand and Australia. As some of you may already know, um, some of our donor uh, partners who have uh, committed themselves to provide budgetary support uh, to us this year have uh, have seen... uh, changed their position and then delayed their assistance to, to us, and we are struggling to really finance the uh, 2023 uh, budget. And uh, as I said, this has left this country and uh, people in predicament, in a predicament. However, I am uh, glad uh, and really delighted to announce that the People's Republic of China has stepped up and uh, committed itself to, to meet this uh, uh, shortfall by providing the budgetary support that is needed for 2023. When asked to expand on this, Manasseh Songoware responded in Solomon Islands Pigeon that before he left on the trip, Cabinet heard that budgetary funding expected from several donor partners, including New Zealand, Australia, Japan and the World Bank, had been delayed. So we've analysed that in different ways, but that's how it is. It's their money, we respect them and their taxpayers. If they want to help us or not help us, that's how it is. But because of that, it has put a little bit of pressure on the budget, especially our priority to fund the Pacific Games. However, a Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade spokesperson told RNZ the New Zealand government has not withheld or delayed any budget support to Solomon Islands. Aotearoa New Zealand remains committed to our development partnership and over the past year has provided 10.1 million New Zealand dollars in budget support to Solomon Islands, including for education, economic reform and Pacific Games support. 
In a statement to the ABC, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade also denied the Australian government had backtracked on any formal commitments. Australia has delivered on our budget support commitments to Solomon Islands this year. The support has been provided across numerous sectors in Solomon Islands, including health, education and elections. Manasi Songobare eventually conceded that some of this funding was expected to arrive in government coffers this month, but insisted his country would need all the help it could get to deliver on its main priority for this year, which is to deliver the Pacific Games in November. That's how it is. We need to have enough resources there in terms of our revenue. I'm sure it will pick up, pick up already. Maybe the money that our friends have mentioned, probably it has already come, because they said it would be by mid-July or towards the end of July it should come. Once it comes, that's great. We really need to have some resources there to successfully host the Pacific Games. During the press conference, Manasseh Songovare also questioned what he described as the unneighborly and coercive diplomatic approach of targeting China-Solomon Islands relations and labelled it as foreign interference in the affairs of Solomon Islands. Mr Songovare has not responded to RNZ's questions regarding New Zealand and Australia's rebuttals. Finally, the Melanesian Arts and Culture Festival is underway in Vanuatu. The theme is Rebuilding Our Melanesia for Our Future. Our Vanuatu correspondent, Hilaire Boule, spoke with the organising committee chair, Richard Ching, following the arrival of the 130-strong Kanak delegation. This morning we are witnessing the arrival of 130 uh, delegation from uh, New Caledonia coming with Two ministers, Mr. Mr. Powell and another minister. Um, we will be expecting Solomon Islands to come this afternoon and Torres Strait Islands. Uh, and yesterday we already received uh, the delegation from Fiji. Uh, we will be expecting Papua New Guinea to come later on during the week. Uh, and once they've come, we'll probably be the last uh, contingent to be waiting for. Uh, so we can begin programs and witness. And uh, what about the local uh, participants? Uh, most of our local participants are already here. We're just awaiting uh, groups from the banks and tourists, uh, which will arrive later on during the week. But otherwise, all of our local participants, uh, numbering about 600, are already in Villa and waiting for the festival to start. So what time there will be the opening of the uh, art festival? Well, the, the opening of the South Melanesian Arts and Culture Festival uh, will be on the 19th of July. Uh, and it will be an all-day uh, opening program, uh, which will take place uh, on Ivira and uh, at the Sarlana stage. So far, can, uh, what is your main message uh, to the people of Vanuatu? Uh, my main message is... Uh, the main message is uh, it is, is as host of, uh, of the Seven Artists. Uh, we would like the people of Vanuatu to, to show uh, Vanuatu's hospitality uh, to our incoming visitors, to uh, show treat them with respect, and to make sure that uh, when they leave, they leave with uh, high spirits and they're all happy. And they, uh, we we uh, do not get to have to deal with any issues that will affect the festival. My message is that people uh, respect our incoming vis- our visitors, help them, and make sure that uh, whenever they leave, 
the stay over here is very memorable and it be a good uh, event, good and successful event. That's Pacific Waves for today. You can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the wonderful team here at RNZ Pacific, mai taki mata, kia manuia.